Good evening to everyone listening. My name is Eliana Svilik. Welcome to this month's edition of my podcast, Capital Connections. On this podcast, we explore the intersection between economics, politics, and everyday life. We try to understand why the flow of money between countries and companies matters. This podcast is an educational initiative with the goal of educating my peers, high school students, on the global political economic events that schools often neglect to teach fully, despite their relevance to our lives. Today's topic, the global supply chain crisis that we are experiencing, is uniquely relevant due to our proximity to the ports of LA and Long Beach, which are the two busiest ports in North America and the epicenters of the crisis. We have a great guest here today who will help us unravel the causes and impacts of the issue, including the price increases for everyday products that we are all experiencing. But first, here's some background. Today's supply chain crisis is largely caused by the pandemic, and the resulting high prices are exacerbated by Trump-era tariffs. Prior to the pandemic, the global supply chain could be simplified to a relatively dependable cycle. Goods were transported at high rates from manufacturers in Asia to developed economies, mostly in North America and Europe. Shipping containers returned with a specific export to Asia. When the pandemic initially began, in those first months of 2020, China was the epicenter of the disease. So, China was and still is the biggest manufacturing hub in the world, meaning that when China began shutting down factories and ports to contain the spread of COVID, the global supply chain was subsequently affected. After China, other manufacturing hubs in surrounding Asian countries also closed, and then soon after, economies around the world buckled down to weather the pandemic. Supply chain issues were expected and accepted. However, nearly two years into the pandemic, with most economies reopened, the economic recovery is not happening as smoothly as many hoped it would, and the supply chain crisis is seemingly far from over. Tariffs imposed by the Trump administration, some of which were never resolved, have contributed to the rising prices consumers are facing. In the first episode of Capital Connections, we covered the U.S.-China trade war, which was mostly fought using tariffs, also known as taxes on imports of specific goods. To refresh everyone's memory, former President Trump began the trade war in July of 2018, around a year and a half before the pandemic began. Currently, around 350 billion U.S. dollars worth of tariffs remain on Chinese goods, which span from sneakers to TVs. In addition to tariffs on China, taxes were also instituted on steel and aluminum from Turkey, Canada, and Mexico, as well as aircrafts, wine, and other goods from the EU. Some tariffs on Mexico were lifted in 2019, followed by some on Canada in September of 2020. Taxes on goods from the EU were recently eliminated by the Biden administration in October of 2021. While some tariffs have been eliminated, their contribution to the supply chain crisis and the ensuing increases in prices in consumer goods remains. Here today to provide clarity on the complicated supply chain issue is the New York Times global economics correspondent, Mr. Peter Goodman. Prior to his career at the New York Times, Mr. Goodman was with the Washington Post for a decade, where he was initially the Shanghai bureau chief and Asian economics correspondent. 
He then reported from Washington, D.C. on telecom during the dot-com boom. Mr. Goodman was also the executive business and global news editor at the Huffington Post and has reported from over 36 countries on nearly every continent. He is also the author of the book, Past Due, The End of Easy Money and the Renewal of the American Economy, released on the heels of the Great Recession in the late 2000s, and his second book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World, will be released in early 2020. Mr. Goodman is the recipient of numerous journalism awards, including a Loeb Award for commentary. He is a graduate of Reed College and holds a master's in Vietnamese history from UC Berkeley. Thank you so much for being here, Mr. Goodman. So, Mr. Goodman, what drew you to reporting on the state of the global economy? Well, it was sort of an outgrowth of work I'd been doing for years. I covered the uh, the dot-com bubble while I was a technology reporter based in Washington for the Washington Post. And uh, that got me interested in an in industry that's truly global. Uh, and then I went off to China in 2006, and I was the Asian economic correspondent. And you know, to write about China in those years was essentially to write about the global economy because China was becoming such a huge part of you know, how we get uh, many of the things that are manufactured that, that we rely on in our lives. And I, I moved back to New York in uh, 2007 and covered international economics. So suddenly I was doing a lot of Latin America stuff and along with domestic uh, stuff. And then I joined the Times in 2007 and covered the national economy, which meant that I covered the Great Recession. So, you know, by that, by that point in my career, I thought about economics in a lot of different contexts. And when the time sent me to Europe in 2016, that sort of filled in a, a missing part of the map for me. And uh, it then made sense to not only cover Europe, but the Middle East and, and Africa. Uh, and by that time, I'd thought about so many different regions individually that it was sort of natural to start thinking about covering the global economy. Interesting. Thank you. So, why don't we begin with you describing the global supply chain problem in your own words? Sure. So, you know, the global supply chain is this thing that most of us don't really give any thought to in normal times. We just go to the store, we go online and we buy what we need. We don't really think about all of the people and companies and uh, trucks and planes and ships that have, that have all sort of worked together to bring the stuff to our doors. Uh, well, you know, that has really broken down in the in the course of the pandemic. And I mean, the first thing that happened was was in the first wave of the pandemic, China, which makes most of the so-called PPE, I mean, the, the face masks and surgical gowns uh, that frontline medical workers were relying on, th- those things were short suddenly all over the world. So China started sending uh, shipping containers, these big steel boxes that move goods on top giant ships, started shipping uh, containers full of PPE around the world, uh, including to places that didn't have much to send back. Uh, so, you know, typically a shipping container might be loaded with factory goods made in China, put on a ship, sent to Los Angeles, unloaded in Los Angeles, and then gets loaded with something else, maybe grain produced by an agribusiness in the middle of the United States and sent back to Asia. Well, all of these containers that had carried face masks and gowns and so on to places like West Africa, South Asia, they just started piling up there empty because 
these are uh, parts of the globe that don't make stuff that gets sent back to, to China in, in big volumes. So suddenly Americans in particular are shifting their spending in the midst of the pandemic from stuff that we weren't doing while we were afraid to, to go and interact with other human beings. You know, we're not going to the malls, so we're not buying retail goods off the shelves. We're not going to movie theaters. We're not going to sporting events and concerts. But we are spending lots of money and we, we're shifting our, our spending from those sorts of things to buying up office chairs for our houses because we're suddenly working from home to, you know, entertaining kids with video game consoles to uh, new barbecues, you know, all sorts of uh, we're focusing on our houses. And a lot of that stuff's made in China. So there's a surge of factory orders in China uh, for goods destined for the United States. And the shipping containers are now in the wrong places. So goods are piling up on the docks of ports in China and other parts of Asia, uh, unable to get on board ships to reach, the, to, to reach places like the port of Los Angeles and, and Long Beach and New York and New Jersey. Uh, and then eventually the containers become available and the goods start arriving, but they come in such huge quantities that they swamp the infrastructure on the other side. This will uh, be no news whatsoever to an audience in Southern California, but suddenly you've got ships that are piling up, that are forced to wait at sea before they can unload because there's just too many of them. There are more than the number of docks. Uh, Of course, the people who normally unload ships, some of those people are sick or in quarantine. There aren't enough truck drivers to haul these containers to warehouses in places like the Inland Empire. And so goods just start piling up, you know, all along the chain and suddenly uh, goods are in short supply. Interesting. Thank you. So let's break it down, beginning with factories and taking us all the way to the marketplace. In your October 22nd article for the New York Times, you wrote, Americans took the money they used to spend on on such experiences and redirected it to goods for their homes, which are suddenly doubling as offices and classrooms. Factories whose production tends to be fairly predictable ramped up to satisfy a surge of orders. How has this surge in manufacturing demand contributed to the supply chain crisis? I know you mentioned this, but could you go into more detail, please? Yeah, sure. Um, So the supply chain has been run, by and large, according to a principle known as just-in-time manufacturing. So long before most of us were born, when the supply chain was first being developed, we tended to put parts that we might need raw materials in big warehouses and then if something bad happened that made it difficult for us to get hold of the stuff we needed to make the goods that we were making in our factories we had extra supplies on hand well for a whole bunch of reasons some of them good and important reasons like efficiency and some of them uh, less understandable reasons like rewarding executives of large corporations with bonuses and buying back shares of stock, we've tended to spend less money warehousing parts and more money on those sorts of things, you know, paying out dividends to shareholders. And the result of that is that when, you know, when times are good, the supply chain works fine. We make the goods that we, that we need and deliver them on time. And when something bad happens, we don't have much of a backup plan. And that's, that's what we experienced. When, when suddenly uh, there's 
great unanticipated demand for all sorts of things, Peloton exercise bikes, exercise goods, baking sheets to entertain uh, students who are cooped up at home dealing with distance learning, office furniture uh, so that working professionals can suddenly call their bedrooms their offices. This, this happens so quickly. And meanwhile, there's not much slack in the system. And the result is a massive traffic jam. Interesting. Thank you. So at the heart of the supply chain crisis are shipping containers, which are piling up in ports, as you mentioned previously, and they're arriving and causing traffic jams in supply chain distribution, particularly in ports in North America. Right. So according to the LA Times, the number of containers coming into Long Beach and Los Angeles is up about 25% through September compared with last year. Ports are overflowing with shipping containers to unload, and they are struggling to keep up. On October 13th, President Biden announced that the Port of LA is to begin operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I know you've mentioned this slightly previously, but what is causing this enormous backlog? What's causing the enormous backlog of containers? Containers and ships waiting in port. And well, just the yeah, so the backlog of ships waiting in port. Uh, is a whole bunch of factors. One, there are more ships. Two, the shipping schedules uh, were initially cut. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, many of the actors in the global economy assumed that the economy was going to go into a significant and lasting recession. There'd be less demand for all sorts of things, including transportation. So shipping lines cut some of their services. And then uh, it took some time to add them back. The containers were in the wrong places at the wrong times for reasons that we discussed. Uh, then uh, when they, they caught up, there was just such a volume of, of goods that needed to be shipped. Uh, and then we've had you know, uneven shipping patterns. So, you know, there, were, there was a COVID case at a major container port in the Chinese city of Shenzhen. This is a major industrial hub. That shut down shipping for a time. So by the time they started it back again in the spring, there was a huge backlog to work off of. Same thing happened in another significant Chinese port in Ningbo. Uh, Vietnam was shut down uh, for much of the summer because of particularly bad outbreak of COVID. So, and you know, the Suez Canal, which is a major uh, artery of, of global transportation linking Asia to Europe, uh, was was shut down when a huge container ship got lodged in the center of the Suez Canal. And any time a container I mean, we may think, you know, what does this have to do with Los Angeles if, you know, a container ship that's traveling from Asia to the Dutch port of Rotterdam gets stuck in the Suez Canal? Well, you know, now there's there's delivery that's going to be unloaded late in Rotterdam, which means something that's going to be loaded up in Rotterdam. That's going to happen late. Maybe that's eventually headed for North America. Every action triggers, you know, other actions. Uh, but then, you know, at the other side, at the port side, you simply have significant shortages of workers. So you've got uh, longshoremen who are sickened or in quarantine. You've got truck drivers who are sidelined by COVID. And then you just don't have enough warehouse capacity. So in many cases, I mean, both in LA, Long Beach and in Savannah, Georgia, you have containers piling up on the docks because the people who've ordered all this stuff have no place to put it. Their warehouses are full. Uh, rail services have been overwhelmed, and so they're fairly slow. The trucking companies can't take this stuff. It's really every part of the supply chain that's kind of failed at once. Right. So I understand why 
Ports in North America, such as Long Beach, Los Angeles, Savannah, are facing enormous backlog. But why are ports in Asia facing backlog? Could you go more into detail about that? Yeah, I mean, it's a similar dynamic. You, initially, there weren't enough containers. Uh, and then you just had massive volumes of goods. And you only have so much capacity. And once there's a, another COVID outbreak that shuts operations down, the stuff piles up. And, and then when you resume operations, there's more stuff that, you, you know, you've not only got the new stuff that the factories have produced, you've got the stuff that was piling up. So all of that causes delays. Interesting. Thank you. So as you said previously, the global supply chain can be likened to an enormous ecosystem where one snag can cause ripple effects throughout the rest of the world and the rest of the supply chain. On The Daily, a podcast produced by the New York Times, which listeners should definitely check out if they want to hear more from Mr. Goodman on the supply chain issue, you talked about the mad rush to get containers out of ports around the world and back to Asia, where components are ready to be transported. Shipping companies are even transporting empty shipping containers back to Asia without waiting for them to be filled. How are the shipping conglomerates benefiting off of the supply chain issue? Huh. Well, they're making enormous amounts of money. I mean, before the pandemic, to ship a container full of goods from the east coast of China to the west coast of the United States cost about 2500 bucks. Now, it costs more than $25,000. And uh, even companies that are able to pay those incredible rates are frequently discovering that they're getting bumped off of ships and then they have to pay additional surcharges for priority handling. None of this is transparent. Like no, the, the, the retailers who are dependent upon shipping complain that the contracts are really poor. The terms are subject to all sorts of change. I mean, sort of like, you know, imagine that you were trying to fly from LA to the East coast of the U S at Christmas time. And amid the great rush at LAX, the carrier could just say, Oh, actually, uh, we don't have a seat for you, but if you'll pay 10 times the usual rate, then we do. I mean, this is this is how shipping carriers have, have essentially been treating retailers. Interesting. That makes sense. So to expand on the practice of transporting empty shipping containers back to Asia from ports in North America, in Europe as well, what is the impact on consumers in Asia and producers in countries like the U.S.? Well, I mean, the impact, I mean, the impact for consumers is we're paying a lot more. In some cases, you know, ex- tremendously higher prices than, than, than previously for all sorts of goods, from lumber to paint to electronics. In, in terms of producers, some producers, like, like uh, farmers, for instance, have a very difficult time exporting their crops. So grain farmers in the middle of the United States who send their products to, to Asia have found it very difficult to get hold of shipping containers. Got it. Thank you. So on the daily, you mentioned the ports such as the one in Savannah, Georgia, have yards full of uncollected cargo. So is this the fault of companies that don't have warehouse room? I think you talked about this a little bit previously, but is it really just that they can't get warehouse room or is it more that they don't want to pay for it? Oh, no, no. I mean, they definitely want, to collect their stuff. It, but if they don't have a warehouse in the moment, then they either have to find warehouse space further away, which, which they're doing in some cases. I mean, companies, so, you know, let, let me just back up. I mean, in terms of the question of fault, 
I mean, there's a lot of fault to go around. Uh, there are certainly conglomerates that have consolidated over time that have that have taken capacity out of the system for all sorts of goods, which makes prices go up. You know, I mean, I'll give you I'll give you one example. You know, something I'm working on right now. Beef prices are higher than they've ever been. Beef is supposedly in short supply, but cattle ranchers are actually going bankrupt. Uh, now, why is it that we, the regular people, are going to the store paying more for beef than we ever imagined, while the people actually raising the animals are losing their, their livelihood? I mean, the answer is that there's four giant conglomerates that control roughly 85% of the slaughterhouse capacity. So they're getting all the money. The cattle ranchers aren't getting the money for their animals. The shareholders of these conglomerates and their executives are, are getting the lion's share of the money. That, that's, that's an example I'm giving you because it's, it's pretty straightforward. There are lots of kind of unseen, not consumer-facing products that we wouldn't even think about. You know, a chemical that's used to make paint, uh, a chemical that's used to make a coating that uh, is applied to a piece of wood that shows up at Home Depot that your contractor, you know, understands the significance of that most of us would never think about, uh, or elements that are used in making COVID vaccines. There are all sorts of shortages there where the shortages are not simply no one planned on a pandemic. Companies carefully figured out how to minimize competition so they can get more for their products, and they're taking advantage of of these shocks. Now, in terms of, you know, the warehouse case, it's fair to say that if you're a publicly traded company and you're competing with another publicly traded company, you're under pressure to behave the same way everyone else is behaving. And if, if warehouses are scarce, then there's a good chance you're not investing in warehouses because that's a cost you have to lay out which you know reduces your profitability on your on your balance sheet and investors are are paying for lower costs and more more profit. So a lot of this is sort of like the fashion that has taken hold in in the marketplace if, if any of that makes sense. Yes, thank you. So we've talked a lot about products that have to make it across the sea from Asia. What about products manufactured in the US or produced in the US? If that is leading to higher prices, why? If those products are being sold at higher prices, why is that? Well, you know, this goes back to your original question about the global supply chain. I mean, there are very few goods nowadays that are just made in one place. I mean, there might, I mean, we might have final assembly of a car in Ohio, but there's a good chance that it relies upon parts from China, parts from Mexico, parts from Eastern Europe raw materials from Canada. And as long as there's a hiccup in the global supply chain, even something that's made in the US uh, is probably relying on imported uh, parts that have gone up in price or, or that are difficult to secure. So, you know, I, I'll come back to this paint example. You may be a paint manufacturer outside Philadelphia and you need 27 different chemicals to make your paint. And you can get 26 of them in the United States, but that 27th comes in you know, on a container ship from China. And if that thing is stuck off of Long Beach, you can't make paint. Uh, and as a result, what paint is out there on the marketplace is now more valuable and it goes up in price. Right. Okay. So scarcity equals an increase in price. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just basic supply and demand, right? I mean, if there's, there's less paint than there used to be, 
and the demand for paint is going up because, uh, well, people aren't going to their offices. We have to cancel our vacation. We were looking forward to, you know, going skiing. I guess we're just going to stay home. Let's make home nice. Okay, let's uh, let's add. Let's go refinish the basement. Uh, well, well, everybody's having that idea at once. So now there's more demand, and meanwhile, the supply of lumber, of paint, of tiles, of glass, like all this stuff has gone up. Well, you know what happens when the supply of something goes scarce when demand goes up, the price goes higher. That's how it works. Got it. Thank you. So to conclude, what does the future of the global supply chain look like? Do you foresee that everything will return to the old status quo? And of perhaps particular interest to our audience, will prices return to pre-pandemic levels? You know, this is really tough to say. I mean, there's so many countervailing forces. You know, I personally have come around to the view that the supply chain is being remade and we're not just going to sort of snap back to pre-pandemic normal, uh, there will be some version of new normal. I mean, let's let's think about, you know, the numbers of older people who never engaged in online buying, you know, who are content to go to the grocery store, who during the pandemic decided it was time to try Fresh Direct or Whole Foods or, you know, some other way to get groceries delivered to their door rather than take the risk of mixing with other people. Well, they've now gotten a taste of that online shopping convenience and they're probably not going to give it up and online e-commerce you know is much more complicated for the supply chain to handle than the old-fashioned way right i mean if if you if you run you know safeway that's complicated enough just to buy up all the goods that are on the shelves at the, at the safeway and then distribute them to one endpoint the supermarket where we go with our carts and buy our goods if suddenly you have to deliver that stuff to individual households, that's just a lot more complexity. It means your warehouses have to be closer to where you're delivering the stuff. So you probably need more warehouses. You probably need more machinery, more ways of sorting inventory. These are all stresses on the system and it's hard to see how they're going away. Some prices probably will return to something close to normal. I mean, shipping costs are starting to come back down. Lumber costs skyrocketed. And now, you know, it's simple enough for supply to be built back up to meet that demand. But there are other other areas where it's, it's hard to know what the real price of something you know is now that we've gotten a taste of the scarcity. I mean, computer chips, something we haven't talked about, are in really scarce supply because and com- computer chips now go into everything, right? Not only our electronics, but cars, uh, medical devices. And it takes two to three years to build up extra capacity for computer chips Auto manufacturers made a huge mistake. They just assumed that their demand for their products was going to crater as the pandemic hit. So they slashed orders for computer chips. They're they're now having to slash their own production for cars while they're begging the computer chip manufacturers to build up capacity. That's going to take two to three years. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons to think this is going to be with us for some time. And there are a lot of reasons to suspect that whatever this leads to, it's not going to look exactly like it did before the pandemic. Interesting. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Yeah. Great questions. Appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you to everyone who listened today to Capital Connections, and I hope you walk away with a better understanding of the supply chain crisis, which is one of the most complicated issues of the year. Thank you and Happy New Year.